0: Log
1: Talk Radio. This is the Naked Talk with Alex Okoji. It's all about straight talk with some of the biggest global icons, leaders, entertainers, motivational speakers, authors, life coaches, relationship experts, social advocates, and extraordinary friends as they speak themselves their experiences and share their unfiltered thoughts about life issues. I believe in stripping the lives and empowering the mind through the freedom of expression. I'm unapologetic about being open, so I motivate my guests to tell it like it is and help my listeners build a presence of mind while finding their voice. So it's all about the best in authentic conversations with real people about real life experiences. So let's keep it. I'm filtered. I'm scripted. I'm censored. And I'm caught. You're welcome to today's episode. Welcome to another Talk Wednesday on The Naked Talk with Alex Berge. And yes, uh, they say I'm the Nigerian queen of talk. (laughs) You're Dan Wright. Well, guys, it's nice to be back here again. And yes, this is our second show for 2016. And I'm very excited to be here. And yes, I'm broadcasting live all the way from Lagos, Nigeria, the heart of Africa. Uh, Yeah, last week on uh, The Naked Talk, it was a Friday radio special, and we had such two amazing guests on this show. Yes, we had the delectable Stella DeMassis and, of course, her partner, filmmaker Danielle Adémonico, And you know, both of them were here. We talked about uh, a woman with vision for a man with dreams, and it was such an engaging conversation. So many things happened in the show. We had so much great fun, and you know, just talking about their very, yes, uh, they're very, you know, they yeah, they're very. Uh, Uh, what's it called, you know, their romance, because, you know, it was all over the Internet that people were talking about their relationship. Some people were speaking against it It and fans. A lot of people had things to say, but it was nice to have both of them together here, you know, live on the show and just, you know, sharing their relationship goals and, you know, how they found themselves and fell in love. That was such a great conversation. So if you missed that, don't forget you can still catch any episodes you missed. Come back here to the Archive uh, um, to the radio channel and listen to the archive show or you can find us on any of our syndicated radio networks. Yes, we're syndicating on Stitcher, iTunes, and Tuning Radio and if you miss any episode, you can always listen back. Uh, yeah. Well, this episode of TNT Old Footage is brought to you by our friends at Evolution Magazine. They're all about bringing to you the hair side of life and you know, giving your hair a voice. And of course, uh, you can find them at Com. And, of course, our friends at Venture Naturals, where they're all about the best quality natural skincare products made from the best natural fruits and oils right here in Africa you can find them, you know, on you know at their official website, or you can find them on Facebook. Visit their Facebook page. Well, today on the show, we're going to be talking about so much. Really, you know, we've we started this conversation sometime last year in February, and you know, it's nice to come back here and you know just catch up on what exactly is happening, and you know, yeah, just get updated, you know, on the you know about the you know the issue. But just before we go, you know, go into that, don't forget, have you gotten a copy of my book? Exactly. <laughs> you have to get a copy of The Naked Truth, Life Strip. Yes, you can find a copy of my book at my official website. It's really, you know, an intimate, relatable book offering wisdom to those who have struggled or perhaps are still struggling to, you know, find themselves, just just struggling with the truth about themselves, uh, the truth about love, life, relationships, and basically just reinventing their careers. And you can, you know, you can go to my official website at me. Or you can find it on Amazon, Bands and Nobles, iBooks, you know, wherever your favorite online book retail store is, you can find my book there. So um, it's nice to basically come back to today's conversation. Now, today we're going to be talking about raising that voice of innocence with our guest. You know, she's a citizen advocate for the wrongly convicted who picked up her flag for justice after reading and learning about the six men convicted for the murder of Thomas Mundell's. Now, a case that occurred in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and totally outraged by the questionable integrity of the investigation and the plight of the five people incarcerated in prison. Um, it's nice to bring back. Yes, and she's back because the entire world is listening to her right now. She's back on the show. Joan Trepidation, I like to call her Joan Trepidation because, you know, that's (laughs) what everyone else calls it, but Joan is back on the show, and today we're having a roundtable conversation with, uh, you know, a number of uh, important people as well, Um, and uh, yeah, I'm very excited to have here, we also have um, our guest, so let me me just get on to Joan says, hi Joan, Joan are you here? Hello
2: Alex, yes I am here, thank you for inviting me back, and congratulations on a successful first year.
1: Thank you so much, Joan. Um, thank you, and, and, you know, we're very excited to have you back here on the show. Um, I also know that we have Nina Bingham. We have a American author uh, and life coach, Nina Bingham. She's here as well. Hi, Nina.
3: Hi, Alex. Hi. Hi, everybody. <laughs>
1: it's, it's nice to have you back here. You're kind of like a part of the house now, like you're like, a, you know, a friend of the house. Like, it's almost like I get to see you almost every two, three, four <laughs> That's a joke actually but it's nice to have you back on the show. Thank you for coming.
3: Thank you. I'm part of the crew you now. You there?
1: No. <laughs> but <laughs> you know but it's nice you know, when you have people who always have you know you always have a very you have a uh we have a perspective. We really have very few perspective, a on a lot of issues. So it's always nice to have people like that come back on this year and just kind of lend their voices to topical issues. So I think, you know, we're very so excited to have you here. And, of course, we have, you know, we have another Joan in the house. We have Joan Van Hook. She's here. Uh, we'll talk about the voice of the of course, we're going to be talking to all of you. But it's nice to have you back here, Joan. Hey, Joan.
4: Thank you. It's great to be back.
1: It's <laughs> the last time you were here it was a pretty emotional it was pretty emotional uh, uh you know period yeah, it was really an emotional show actually i will probably get into that conversation at some point but you know it's nice to have you here i think we have someone else here as well um you know again guys wherever you're listening from around the world you can join this conversation the number to call is 215 383 3766 if you're calling from outside the us make sure to add plus 1 Two one five three eight three three seven six, and we're talking about wrongful conviction. Uh, this is a roundtable conversation, and uh, make sure to use your hand raising effect press one, so that I know that you want to call in, that you want to talk. I mean, if you don't press one, then I think you're just listening. So if you press one, then we know that you're, you know, definitely going to be part of this conversation. Um, so, uh, Joan, hi Joan. Hi. <laughs> I, I have to. I have to remember <laughs> I to say you your last name because I realized there are two. Three- Exactly. You can say Joan um, T for me, I guess. Okay, so I'm gonna do this. I'm probably gonna say Joan T and Joan V. Will that work? All right. All right.
5: <laughs> Works
1: for me. Okay. 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 So, um, the last time you were you were here, the first time you were here, you were here uh, in February last year, in 2015, yep. and we had th- we had that show um, about. Um, we talked about the voice, you know, you, the voice for the class. And, and you. We
0: have, to, we have that show. Um, hello. About. Um, I'm here. About
1: the voice. Okay, there's, there's somebody else. Okay, I have to put him on mute. I think Max is Max is around. Uh, Max, if you're listening, you 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 don't need to listen. Somebody else, you know, somebody else is here. I think Max is here, but we'll get to him. Um, but you were here in um, February, and we talked about a voice for the class. And you did, you know, share your story as to how you started with your advocacy, right, for um, those who are wrongly convicted. And you shared your story with us. Now, for the sake of those, you know, who are listening, who are probably tuning in for the first time, who probably missed that show or who, for some reason, haven't come in contact with your work, um, could you, like, you know, take us back a little bit to what exactly – you know, give us maybe like a little brief synopsis of the Mulfield's case, and you know how you got involved.
2: I will. So in 1992, um, paper mill worker Tom Monfiles made a 911 call to the police to report a theft by a coworker, Keith Kutzka. That coworker found out okay. and went to the police station to obtain a copy of the cassette tape of the 911 call. And they gave it to him. He confronted Monfiles at work with a tape a week later. And then Monfiles went missing after being confronted and was found the following day at the bottom of a paper pulp vat with a rope and waiter tied around his neck. Um, So afterwards, a -a two-and-a-half-year investigation, um, after this investigation, six men, including Kutzka, were given life sentences for murdering Tom Monfiles. Um the the investigation was or the um, event was labeled as a union conspiracy, which each, with each man covering up for the other in a scheme to hide this murder. Okay, so in 2001, um, so they were they were convicted in 2001. Um, one of the men, Michael Piaskowski, was released. He was one of the six by order of a federal judge due to lack of evidence against him. So then in in 2009, a book called The Monfauce Conspiracy by John Gay and Dennis Gollickson was published about this case. The book questioned the police theory of the conspiracy, and it was a document of the aspects of the case, and it pointed to the innocence of all of the men. So Piaszkowski was the insider who informed the authors of what really happened that day. Because he was there, he saw it all, and said that the evidence used against all these men during the trial was false. And it was an wow. effort to cover up the mistake of releasing the tape of the phone call. Okay, so in 2009, right after the book was published, I was given a copy by one of the authors, John Gay. Um So I read it, and I was moved enough to want to get involved, and I had no idea where to start. I didn't have a legal background or anything, so what I did is I offered to sell copies of the book here in Minneapolis in an effort to create awareness, and a year into selling books, I sold one to John Johnson, um, who is a retired crime scene investigator, and he wanted to get involved. So he helped me find an attorney to reopen the case. And we hired attorney Steve Kaplan from the law firm in Minneapolis of Fredrickson and Byron. So Steve spearheaded a new investigation and brought the case back into the courts um, where where this occurred in Green Bay. And that was in, t- in last year, 2015. Um So this case was finding new breath after many years of failed attempts to free these men through appeals. And it was nothing short of a miracle. So, um, Alex, on your show last February, we concluded with the hope for an evidentiary hearing to request a new trial for the lead suspect, Keith Kutzka, okay? I don't know if you remember that. Um, Johnny had, had mentioned that at the end of the show so um, that that hearing actually took place in July, and it lasted three days, and 14 witnesses testified. Um, and the purpose of the hearing was to provide reasonable doubt that a murder had been committed, and it was to introduce evidence that supports the possibility that Tom Monfiles committed suicide. So that was um, really breaking, you know, that was unprecedented for that case because wow. the idea of suicide had never been addressed before. So mm-hmm. where it stands now our is um we are waiting for a ruling from the original trial judge who oversaw the evidentiary hearing. And I just wanted to cover just for you know to conclude here what actually the the process is in short and what we can expect so the judge could issue an order that grants keith's motion to overturn the conviction and grant him a new trial or he could deny the motion and affirm the original conviction whichever party
5: wow.
2: whichever party loses um can appeal to the Wisconsin Court of Appeals which is a state's intermediate appellate court comp- comprised of 16 judges from four districts and that could take 12 to 18 months. And then whichever party loses that appeal can petition the Wisconsin Supreme Court which is comprised of seven judges and it's the state's highest court located in the state's capital and that could take another month or another year and a half. But um I'll just say and then I'll um I'll let you continue on. Um, The most important Mm -hmm. aspect to all this is that the families are hopeful and the men are are super energized. They are just, you know, just thrilled that this is all happening and it's back in the courts. And I mean, it's really a dream come true for them. And no matter the outcome of this hearing, they win because of the support they've received. And they no longer feel alone in their quest for justice. And that's I mean, that's what this is all about. It's about them, and it's about um, showing support and, um, you know, letting them know that they're not alone and that people actually care about this issue. So, um, and I'm just thrilled to be a a part of this whole thing. Thank you so
1: much. Thank you, Joan. You know, just... And, you know, just thinking about this, because we have this conversation, um, a lot of people were actually surprised at, you know, just how, you know, this the justice system works and, you know, all of that. But I, I need to say this. I think that Mac is here. Uh, Mac, Mac uh, Saxon-Mary is here from the reporting. Yes. Hi, Max.
6: Hi, Hi there.
1: Hi. Welcome how are you? Nice Thanks for
6: having me on.
1: Uh, fine, thank you. Fine. And it's nice to have you here. Um I know uh for those wherever you're listening from, uh Max Backlamer is he's, he's the CEO of the Reporters Inc. And um uh, but you know, and and Max has basically, um sorry, Mac has basically been um lending his voice to the issue of wrongful conviction, if I'm right, Max.
6: Right. Yeah. You you're not the only one to call me Max. People have called me that accidentally for some time. <laughs> It's a combination of Mark and Saxon Meyer, but I'm used to it.
5: Exactly. But yeah, you know, um,
6: I uh, I was invited to come on by you and Joan, and obviously Joan just told you that uh, fascinating backstory about the Monfiles case, and Joan and I connected yeah. recently because uh, we were looking at posts on the Innocence Project of Minnesota. And we here at the Reporters, Inc., are working on a documentary about wrongful convictions. We're calling it The Innocent Convicts. Mm -hmm. And Joan has put us in touch with several cases that we'll be profiling in this documentary, Um, a couple in Wisconsin, a couple in Minnesota, where we're based in the United States, and we're also profiling a huge case in in Texas um, that resulted in the first posthumous exoneration in the history of Texas, resulting in a pardon um by the governor of texas it's this case involves a young man named tim cole who was wrongfully convicted of a rape in 1985 he was sent to prison for 25 years he died in prison before he could be cleared um very tragic story with a lot of sad racial implications uh the the man who actually committed the rape came forward too late um and dna proved he was the actual rapist and not tim cole Um, But it's a case uh, that kind of exemplifies one of the many reasons why wrongful convictions occur. Um, The Monfiles case, case which you just heard Joan talk about, um, also exemplifies one of the many reasons. So our documentary is going to profile several different cases in the U.S., all of which uh, we hope will bring a takeaway, meaning you'll hear about the story, you'll find out why this person was wrongfully convicted, uh, and we'll explore some of the reasons why and what is being done to change the system to try to prevent these types of cases from occurring in the future. It's very complex, no easy answers, but uh, hopefully there will be some lessons learned.
1: I hope so too, uh, and, and and I'm sure that a lot of people are definitely going to be interested in you know learning a little bit more about um, the Enniset conflict. You know, but let me ask you this: you're in, you're definitely including uh, a number of the uh, the cases, the you know the Montrose cases. But how's that coming together? How's it coming together?
6: Uh, um, you know, you just the Montrose case, you yeah. mean? Or all well, of them. The,
1: the documentary. How's the documentary coming together? Well,
6: that? the documentary is coming together well. Um, the case you heard Joan talk about is one that we'll be conducting interviews for in the next couple of months. It's a, it's the a fourth one that we've actually began, begun shooting on. Um, the others, again, include that Tim Cole case. A second one has to do with a man right here in Minnesota named Mike Hanson who was wrongfully convicted of uh, killing his infant daughter. Um, uh, he uh-huh. served six six and a half years before being exonerated. And as a result of what he went through, he's kind of suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, which is often an occurrence among many of these folks who've been wrongfully convicted, as you might imagine. Um, they, they fear mm-hmm. that it might happen again. Uh, so Mike, uh, Mike's child actually uh, was later diagnosed correctly as dying of sudden infant death syndrome. Um, we also are profiling a woman wow. in Wisconsin named Audrey Edmonds, um, she was wrongfully convicted of shaken baby syndrome uh... with uh... when she was uh, there was a child in her care she was like a babysitter uh... at home care provider uh... she served i think eleven years Joan, if i'm not mistaken um, yes. maybe a little longer before she was exonerated and uh... what happened in her case were, were tons of new medical experts and me- medical testimony that shows that shaken baby syndrome isn't always the case and definitely wasn't the case uh... with the child who sure. was in her care um, And, you know, one of the things we'll also be focusing on is is, uh, um, what what does society owe these individuals after they've been exonerated, after they've been cleared? What kind of compensation do they deserve? Uh, Every state has a different package. Uh, Some are offering more, some are offering less, some are offering none. Um, Texas, for example, is giving all of its exonerees $80,000 dollars. For every year they were wrongfully imprisoned. Um, you know, other states, uh, the compensation package is much less. So we're, we'll be looking at what's fair and really, even if they do get compensated, is that enough? So it's it's a very complex exactly. issue. Um, yeah.
1: I was wondering because I'm like, you know, does that make up for all the time that they spent, you know, um, totally being, you know, confined in prison and all of that. But let me ask you just before I get onto, you know, talking to Nina uh, Bingham and uh, and the you other know, and Jonesy, uh, why? What? What exactly was it? At what point did you decide that, you know, this was something that totally interested you? Like, uh, why did you decide, you know, you kind of wanted to do this documentary and tell the story of these people and, you know, showcase? What was it that caught your attention?
6: Great question. You know, our mission statement is to encourage social justice, change, and awareness through powerful multimedia storytelling. So we do that through uh, journalistic means in terms of long-form, in-depth articles and documentaries. Mm -hmm. And a young filmmaker, an aspiring filmmaker um, out of Texas named uh, Asi Okurowa uh contacted us probably 10 months ago. I a a Nigerian immigrant and he lives in Texas with his wife and his newborn. He's a student at Texas Tech University and that's where the this rape occurred back in 1984, uh, 1985 the rape that Tim Cole was wrongfully convicted of. And because Osi uh learned of the history of this case while studying at Texas Tech He became compelled to want to make this into a documentary, Um, you know, and he's still a young, aspiring filmmaker. He doesn't necessarily have the means or the wherewithal to proceed and pursue that. So he reached out to us and said, hey, can you help me do this? And, um, you know, obviously I and most people are aware that wrongful convictions are an issue. We're not maybe maybe clearly abreast of. Uh, how prevalent it might be but once i looked into the tim cole story and i had never heard of this and and i probably should have but i know i i hadn't and a lot of people haven't i knew this was something we we should pursue and we should help ossie find his voice and create his vision so you know we're following his lead and uh what we did was we wanted to to uh expand upon that tim cole case and include cases around the nation so it has an even a wider appeal and we want to include cases that uh, uh, are uh men and women black and white hispanic asian young and old uh some facing death penalty cases um, and then exploring again the different causes of wrongful conviction so hopefully when this is complete you'll have a really good sense of some of the main reasons yeah. why wrongful convictions occur, and how this honestly can happen to anyone, most of you will think, "Oh, that's so sad, that is just tragic, but uh, you know I, that would never happen to me. I don't travel in those circles. I would never find myself in that situation. <laughs> well, what we'll learn uh-huh. is that, yes, it can happen to you. It might very well. it's rather frightening, really. Um, so I think it will be a compelling and very substantive production when we're done.
1: Wow, well done. Well done. And I you know, I'm I'm definitely gonna be following just to um you know, just follow it up and just find out how that, you know, how, how that's coming. But uh you know, and speaking of what you you know, you were saying something. Um I need to uh, speak to Nina. Hi Nina, you're there. Hey Nina Bingham. Hi, I'm here. Hi. Hi. Okay Nina. Um I mean I I know that you're you're a clinical hypnotherapist and you're a life coach. And, you know, you're used to engaging with people daily. And uh, you probably do have, you know, a psychological perspective as to, you know, what the outcome, I mean, for those who have been wrongly convicted and are locked up for a crime that they haven't committed, um, what would you say, you know, are some of the damaging effects that this, I mean, um, Ma, you know, Mac did mention some of the things that, you know, happened to, you know, some of these people. But, you know, from your perspective, what, what would you say other things that they could experience in prison, you know, while they're being locked up, uh, or you know, even when, you know, what, 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 what can you, what, what do you have to say about that?
3: Right. Well, um, first, I can't imagine how that would feel um, to be innocent and, you know, put away for a number of years or your entire life. Something that you didn't do. I mean, it's just, you know, if you sit and think about that, it's it's amazing that this happens but it happens and it happens as as you can see it happens more often than mm-hmm. it should um and so i think you know i can imagine that these people um are feeling definitely misunderstood definitely judged by society um i think i've i've heard a lot of um people who have been in jail for a bit you know served a prison sentence tell me that they felt forgotten uh, by society. They felt uh, put away and forgotten by their family, their friends, um, almost like they became a non-person. So you can imagine um, the impact of that on you. And then, of course, um, on top of that, on top of being the person who is forgotten and no longer a person, um, then you have the, the the prison environment itself, which is toxic, Uh, violent at times, Um, very frightening to live in day in and day out. So it's obvious you can see how uh, post-traumatic stress disorder um, would be something that would be very uh, common among um, convicts. And I think, you know, they may also deal with mental health issues because we know that a combination of predisposition in the brain towards mental uh, illnesses – Uh, Coupled with stress is what um, creates mental health issues, mental illness in people. So uh, the more stress you put on the brain, um, the greater your chance that you're going to develop depression or you're going to develop um, anxiety or some other mental health issue. So I think if they don't already have mental health issues that they're dealing with, you know, when they come out of a situation like that, um, it wouldn't be uncommon that that they would be dealing with a mental health issue.
5: Oh,
1: wow, wow. Okay, um, you know what? How about we take a quick let's take a quick break. Uh, let's take a quick commercial break. We'll be back. Don't go anywhere. Stay there. You're listening to the naked talk with Alex You're
0: listening.
1: Naked Experience by Alex Okoroji From timid girl to Confident woman. It will make you laugh It will make you cry It will make you cuss, but most of all It will be a great resource for you and your loved ones Log on to www.alexokoroji.net To reserve your copy And win two VIP
0: tickets To the book tour
1: and match you're Just tuning in, this is still gonna make a talk with Alex Akurji, and yes, I'm broadcasting live all the way from Lagos, Nigeria to heart of Africa, and you know, just to follow went on that break uh you know I've been chatting with my guests um we' been talking to citizen Advocate uh Joan Trepper, and you know Joan shared quite a bit of stuff with us. Uh, we've also, you know, spoken to Max saxon uh, you know, the CEO of The Reporters, Inc., and of course, you know, Nina Bingham, life coach, you know, author, and clinical hypnotherapist. Uh, I see a lot of people dialed into the show. Uh, if you if you want to contribute to this conversation, know that you can use your hand-raising effects make sure you press one so that I know that you want to. Speak. Uh, if you don't press one, then I think you're just listening. I see a lot of people in the chat room. Don't forget, you can join this conversation. You can also call in via Skype, for free. just click on the live Skype button and you know, connect to the show. And uh, you know, if you have questions to ask, comments, you know, contributions, whatever it is, whether you want to speak to Mac or Joan or Nina, uh, you know, whoever it is you want to talk to, make sure to uh, you know, call in or leave a message in the chat room. And of course, your messages will be at Right here on the show, uh you know before we went to that break, uh Mina was you know talking to us about the kind of psychological effect um term conviction has on you know some of the victims who have been locked up uh for for crimes you know their aiding commit, and how that can have some impact on their mental health and uh so I see somebody dialed into the show uh you know hello, hello,
7: hello, Bye. Johnny Johnson here.
2: Hi, Johnny.
1: Hey.
7: <laughs> hey, Johnny. Hey, Hi. I'm listening to you guys. Hi, you guys. How are you all? Great. Fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, Max, okay. are you there? This is Mark. Hi, Mark. Johnny Johnson here. <laughs> Hi, Johnny. Hi. How are you? Joan Van Houten, I love you. Um, <laughs> you know, gee, I don't know what to say, but uh, I'm but listening to you guys. You, Go you ahead. What,
1: just, I know you were you were here on the show last, you know, you were here on the show the first time that Joan was here. And, of course, um, yep. you did share quite a bit of stuff, you know, how you got involved um, with Joan and the case and all that. I noticed that you were there so I just thought to bring you on. But, of course, you know, while we're talking about this, a lot of us uh, hear about stories like this, and um, we think we can imagine what the, the you know – we think we have an idea, basically, of how this feels or what it could possibly feel like. Um, and sometimes a lot of people don't because they probably don't have somebody close to them um, who is either going through any of this or they they don't know anyone close. But it's it's always very important to, you know, think about the people who are um, the families, right, and the relatives of these people and what, what the effect that this has on them. And I think you know this is where uh, Joan. Hi, Joan Van. Joan Van in here. Are you there? Hello, Joan. Uh oh. Okay, I think she's. Here. Hi, Joan. Hello, <laughs> Joan. Can you hear me?
4: Uh, yes, I can. Hello, Joan. Hello. Okay,
1: I can hear you now. Yeah. Hi. Okay. Hi, Joan. Hi. Okay. You know, I, I I was saying that. I mean, you um you have a personal experience, right? Um, you're, you know, you've had a family member be, be incarcerated for a crime that dating did commit. And the last time that you were here, I mean, you did share a little bit about what that, you know, sort of felt like. And uh, I know that you have a personal experience, that. I, I kind of wanted you to share that experience, you know,
4: with my listeners. Um, how, what does it feel like, really? Um, I can start by saying that I don't think that I've ever, ever felt such uh, a feeling of helplessness. Um, Cause you're really up against something quite large and it's, it's not an obstacle. That's a personal obstacle that, that you can get over. There's so much involved and it's so overwhelming. Um, you know and you spend a lot of your time um fighting off the fear you know and there's always a fear you're going to say something wrong or you're going to choose the wrong direction and in getting help that you know you're you're not going to choose the right words to reach people you know to to make them understand um the reality of of what you're trying to show them, you know, I, a lot of people, um, you know, it was mentioned that a lot of people they think, well, this is not going to happen to me because you know we don't run in those types of circles. But you know, neither did these men. We're we're not talking about six men who, who were criminals. We weren't. We're not talking about men who didn't have jobs and families and you know hung out on the streets. We're talking about family men who had jobs who supported, you know, supported their loved ones. Um, you know, they they were not, they're unfamiliar with the criminal justice system because they've not been a constant part of it. So, you know, here you have the, the perfect example of six families, um, six separate individual family units um, that weren't a part of that circle, you know. And, and here, look where... Where they are, uh, we were all lost. How to, you know, how do you pick a good attorney? You know, you're not familiar with criminal attorneys, defense attorneys. How, who do you talk to for help? What can you say to a reporter? What shouldn't you say to a reporter? It's just, <clears throat> it, it was an extreme learning experience. It's, it's, it's frightening being thrown into something that you are clueless about, and then being left there to figure it out Um,
1: you know um, I can imagine I honestly can imagine that like you said this could happen to anybody and this isn't necessarily that you know it's not necessarily that because these people are part of a particular circle so you know I I guess we all should be you know engaged in this conversation I'm Joan hi Joan Trepper yes hi hey Joan Okay, yes, hi. I, I mean, I, I was gonna ask you <laughs> I was gonna ask you, uh, you know, we're talking about personal experience. Um, and you know, Joan you know, Joan Van Hittier, She was trying she was trying to explain, uh, you know, how this the family you know, the families uh, you know, the you know, the other five um victims of the Monfield, you know, case. But you have I mean, you've been having some sort of interaction with them, right?
2: Yes. Yes
1: you've been writing some of them, you've gone to see some of them, you know, what would you say, you know, how would you say, uh, you know, how would you say they're faring? And, you know, again, dealing with their families from the outside. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, how this is really affecting them? Because I know that this is really emotional for for Joan. I mean, Joan couldn't really, but can you say from the outside how this truly is affecting
2: them? Great. Well, you know, it's, it's it's very emotional and there's i you know i've gotten letters from the men in prison and they feel comfortable enough to share their their deep feelings and you know there's there's feelings of anger there's there's feelings of um just disbelief in the system they they're they're lost and um they they ha- they share all of these things but as this pr- as we've gone through this process of um getting back into the courts they're now filled with gratitude extremely um huge gratitude that people strangers I mean I didn't know any of them I didn't know Joan Van Houten I didn't know any of the families um they're just grateful that now all these people who are, are actually strangers are supporting them and they're fighting for them. And this case is back in the news. It's in the courts. It's, you know, it's a miracle. And so they feel so hopeful and so grateful that this is happening. And now they, they, you know, they can laugh again. They can you know, feel lighthearted again, Um, things that they couldn't feel before because of being left out and forgotten, basically. So I've seen a transformation of them. I've seen a transformation of the families because I know all the families very well through my six-year journey. And there's so much hope. And people just... Mm -hmm. These people are just... um, Feeling so good about this, and even at wow. this point, no matter the outcome, like I said, they mm-hmm. now know that they're not fighting this fight alone, and that means well, the world to them.
4: I'd like to, I'd like to add to that too, and let Joan be here talking. Sure. But um, <laughs> the the one the flotation device here is hope, and. When when you feel like you finally have a voice, like, you know, somebody's lending your voice to you because you haven't had one, that's, uh. it lifts you up and it, it keeps you going and it makes the next day worth saying, you know, hello to. And it gives you something to look ahead to that, you know, you're not a ghost on this planet, which, you know, really, I can't, I, even as a family member i can only imagine mm-hmm. how how these men feel you know i mean they're they're there they exist they go through their daily routine very structured um mm-hmm. but in in life itself in they were they've become a ghost nobody hears them mm-hmm. you know no, nobody acknowledges that they're still alive and they're innocent and they they need this light to shine on them so so people can see what what they're going through and what they're struggling through. And people like Joan Trepa, uh Johnny Johnson and and the work that Mark is doing, um they are our our flotation device. They're they're what keeps us above water.
7: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I'm speechless. Uh, uh, Thank you. Um, Thank you, Ma- Joan. Mark, yeah.
1: <laughs> Mark, I was going to ask you this, you know, just while, while Joan was talking, okay, both Jones, uh, I was thinking, you know, what 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 is it that the media could do? I mean, what could the media possibly do to kind of, you know, um, kind of bend the light on this issue? Because I I don't think that a lot of people are conscious or aware of the fact that there's so many people – Call pain for quantity community. I think people just assume that you know when the cop you know trials you and then you put you when they find you guilty that you're actually guilty so what can the media do? I mean for someone like you in the media what what, what can you do? What can other people in the media
0: do to sort of uh, well
6: i mean uh, one of the reasons I created the reporter's Inc was to do these kinds of stories because I don't believe many in the mainstream media are doing them you know the the media landscape has changed in recent years so there isn't a lot of in depth reporting uh like this. Uh there still is some mm-hmm. but there isn't as much primarily because there isn't as much money anymore in the media. That's a fragmented media universe we live in. So many people get their mm-hmm. news in different fashions. Uh whereas, mm-hmm. you know, fifteen, twenty years ago it was primarily broadcast in print and now most people get it through mm-hmm. uh through the internet, somehow Where's through social point? media yeah. or uh second hand mm-hmm. through a tweet or they find mm-hmm. out, uh, you know, uh, a portion of it uh, given, you know, the, the way the, the, the news is presented these days. So, you know, there is a lot of things in the media about wrongful convictions, but I don't think many people have the time or the money to spend exposing mm-hmm. and um letting people know why they occur and that and that's that's the key. Uh right now, you know, the all the talk here in the United States uh is about this Netflix series making a murderer and it's right. a very in-depth uh, multi-part documentary uh, focusing on one particular case in Wisconsin and uh it's presented in a in a very theatrical dramatic way. Um, which is captivating people's attention and uh it's getting people talking about wrongful convictions uh because if if the way this is presented is true it looks as if there was quite a bit of law enforcement and prosecutorial misconduct So you know those are those are two of the reasons why wrongful convictions occur. There are a ton of others. There are uh, witness misidentification problems. There are issues with the way lineups are presented to victims. There's perjured testimony. Uh, You know there there are several main reasons why these types of things occur: faulty medical testimony um, and, and evidence. Um, so you know those are things we 'll be exploring with our documentary and and hopefully getting the kind of attention to this issue that that needs to come out. but you know it takes a lot of time this These are complicated issues this This is why these these um appeals and the innocence projects attempts to to exonerate folks takes years. It takes time and money and it's it 's an exhaustive process. Uh so you know it isn't an easy and and a lot of mainstream media uh they don't have time to spend on this. They just simply don't.
4: I I'd like to add something too. Um just Joan V um just with with our experience with um dealing with local media um the you know a secondary problem there is that when when it comes to local media covering um you know events issues like this, um, the the thing is, is that if if they dig too deeply into things that they question, they're literally biting the hand that feeds them. You know, I mean, they have to get a certain amount of information from the police department and police officials, from the DA's office, from the courts. Um, they have to be able to interview these people and, and get statements. And, you know, honestly... Um, they run into a brick wall as you know they're kind of singled out as bucking the system you know it uh-huh. it it cuts on it and and this information is their lifeline that's how they make a living. so you know you can only imagine the kind of um the kind of you know mind battle that goes on for local reporters trying to cover something that even if they have some serious um doubt and and or questions that they can only push it so far um, before they're singled out and, and nobody will talk to them, you know, it, uh, on the state side anymore. Um, yeah, and, can I add part. to that?
6: Uh, you know, journalists are, are are taught to respect authority like most of us are. So when you're on a deadline and you're trying to get information from police or prosecutors, state's attorneys, defense attorneys, you know, you're, you're taking what they're giving you Uh, As the truth, Um, you're, you're assuming they're trying to do the right thing, and they are doing the right thing, and then you're on a tight deadline. So, you know, there's not a lot of room to be wiggling around challenging not only what they're telling you, but to find the time to challenge it.
7: Well said. Well said. Correct. I agree with that.
2: Another aspect, Uh, too, is is not so much the Mm -hmm. media, but, um, you know, especially in a smaller town, judges don't like to overrule other judges' um, cases. They don't like to step on each other's toes, which is something that I learned through this process.
4: Yeah, there, there are so many layers that you just don't. No, uh, un, until unfortunately you find your family swept up in it. They're just layer after layer after layer mm-hmm. of things that you are completely unprepared for.
1: No, yep. correct. Okay, Joan, let me ask you. I mean, the last time you were on the show, we were talking about you know just um the public, you know, community reaction. You know how people reacted to family members of, uh, you know, convicted, you know, citizens of convicted people. Um, do you feel like, has that changed in any way? I mean, the last time you were here, you did say how people would look at you or, you know, look at the family members. Um, do you feel like it's changed a bit or it's still the same? Are people still very judgmental? Um, um,
4: I, you know, I I have to say that... um. Face-to-face, um, e- even those that are angry with you and frustrated with you and want you to just go away, um, they tend to be uh, much more vicious when they're online. Um, but face-to-face, they really, you know, they, they don't have anything to say to you. So, I, I you know, I th- think our family has been pretty fortunate as far as face-to-face confrontations um uh, i i work very hard to not respond to you know to their anger and anger because i i i understand that they fully do not understand um and their reaction is purely emotional um but you can't address something this big uh, from purely an emotional position you have to use uh-huh. some logic and some, you know, rational form of thinking. Um, like, uh-huh. being angry with us because the the first victim's family is hurting and they've suffered a tremendous loss and um, wanting us to go uh-huh. away, um, it, it's just uh-huh. not going to happen because, you know, our men are victims too. My my stepdad, he's a victim of a system that failed him. And you mm-hmm. can't expect me to sacrifice him because you're mad at me. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's yeah. unfair because he may not have been the primary victim, the first victim, but he is in the list of victims here. And to abandon him because someone's uncomfortable with something that I'm saying or with the work that's being done um it's just it's not even the realm of possibility that that's going to happen I, I just and and we all feel deeply very deeply for the loss um that Tom Monfile's family endured um, but that doesn't mean that we're going to abandon the people that we love that we know is innocent and it would be so much easier if we could because then we could go on with our life you know we could say well you did this and and you're where you belong and and we're sorry you did this but it and and then we could kind of exhale and and just go on but unfortunately that's not the case for us and we're stuck we're stuck in this fight because we don't have a choice
5: Oh, true
1: Okay. Um, you know what? How about we take we take a quick break. Uh, let's take a quick musical break. We'll be back. Uh, this is Maybe by Peter Kelly, and Peter Kelly was a guest here uh, in uh, two months ago on the show. Um, we'll be back. Hey, anyone?
7: Anybody there?
5: Yeah, I'm here.
8: Maybe I'm someone. Maybe I'm nobody special at all A good son or somebody's best friend Or invisible Maybe I'm growing Maybe I've already passed my prime Maybe I'm looking for some place to hide What the world decides Maybe it's me Maybe I just don't like what I see lately Maybe the world don't like me Yeah, I wonder what they all think about me Lately, Maybe the world's not for me Maybe she loves me Maybe I'm loved just for being me But if not for the man that I am Then for who I try to be Maybe they're with me, yeah Maybe they're all gonna prove me wrong Maybe I'm scared I've been right all along, And I'm all alone Like me, yeah. Wonder what they all think about me lately. Maybe the world's not full. And And around the world, turns round and around the world, turns round and around the world, turns round and around. I see, lately, maybe the world don't like me, yeah, I wonder what they all think about me, lately.
1: Peter Kelly, and we're back. Okay, guys, if you're just tuning in, this is still the Naked Talk with Alex Okoji, and uh, it's been a rather, you know, intimate conversation about, you know, the issue of uh, wrongly convicted or, or wrong, you know, wrongful conviction, <laughs> to put it that way, um, and, you know, I've, I've been talking to my guests. Um, there's a citizen advocate, uh, Joan Trepper all the way from Minnesota, and, of course, there's um, also Mac, Mack. Second, oh God help me <laughs> you know, The to you that Max. sounds <laughs> Oh my god, Mac Max oh um, you know, and of course there's meaner Bingham, you know, all the way from uh Putnam, Oregon and you know, we have all these people, you know, just basically raising their voice, uh, for uh you know, raising their voice in innocence. Uh for the voice you know, for the innocence, sorry. Um um Joan, Joan V. I have to say, Jonesy, I have to keep differentiated between the both of them. You know, here's before when, you know, on, on on that musical break, you did say quite a bit about um, just, um, you know, how uh, the family members of this victim are not going to give up on their, you know. But let me ask you, I know that you did start The Voice of Innocence. Um, you you started a community, right? Hello, Jones. Uh-oh. Uh, hi, Joan, can you hear me? What are Hello?
4: You? Hello.
1: Okay, can you hear me now? Okay. Yes, I can hear you. Hi,
4: Joan. Okay. Um, Uh, You started a community. Yes, um, we started the community Voice of Innocence, and and it really um, was driven by the need um, to to be able to keep everyone involved and engaged and updated um, on you know not not only what we're going through with our men, but um, also on so many of the other people out there fighting and all the exonerations um, that are happening that, you know, it was like the easiest way really to to try to keep people engaged. And, um, sec, you know, secondary to that is um, it's meant to highlight the work that people like Joan Trepa are doing where... They're doing more than um, just thinking about how how bad the situation is and and how many people it affects. That they're actually lending their strength and their talents and their abilities and they're stepping up and and making difference um, in the lives of countless people. Um, and it it's to highlight the work, you know. Um people need to know that there are things that they can do, um, that they're not uh-huh. helpless, that they can step up and they can talk and they can share and they can uh-huh. be a part of, of creating something really positive. Uh-huh.
5: And
4: you know Okay,
1: I, um um go ahead
4: please. Um I just wanted to say, too, that, you know, people um, that shine the way Joan shines, the way Mark shines, the way Johnny shines, um, they they drive the rest of us, you know? I mean, it's like setting an example, and, and you can't just sit back um, and, and think about how terrible some of these things that happen are, because that it uh-huh. that doesn't change anything. You you have to move outside of yourself and and you have to reach out and you have to become involved because if you think you can just sit there and ignore this um and it's not going to show up on your doorstep uh one day um you may be sorely sorely um sorry uh for for not having been involved.
2: This is Joan T. I just like to add to that that Actually, I think it's a, a two-way street here. I think the stories of Joan and these these men in the Monfiles case and in the Texas case and Audrey's case, they're the people that drive us, the people that care. They drive us because of the tragedy of their stories. So I think it's just a two-way, two-way street. Um, okay. You, you, you know,
1: I'm going to say something. You know, think about this, I mean, Um, I was thinking, you know, while um, Nina had spoken earlier um, that, you know, in terms of the consequences or the outcome of some of, you know, Nina, are you there?
5: Yes, I'm here.
1: I'm here. Okay. Okay, I I was going to ask you this. Do you feel like, um, you know, that some of this, uh, you know, that they might be tempted to commit suicide? You know, we're talking about mental, you know, health Situations and you know, and and the fallout is being confined for something that you didn't do. You feel like some people might actually um, consider committing suicide. I mean, you would know a little bit about that, I and mean, you you've had uh, you'll you understand the pressure that comes from you know. Uh, uh, mental, you know, um, health issues. So, do, do you? What are you? What's your? What's your take on that? Do you feel like that, that could be a situation where some of these people are feeling like you know, I'm tired of this. I'm paying for something. I might as well just take my own life. What do you think?
3: Yeah. Well, we know it happens. You know, we hear that it happens. Um, and uh, you know, in addition to to. Um, convicts having uh, PTSD, or I should say people who are incarcerated, having PTSD or other mental health um, illnesses develop while they're incarcerated, um, you know, uh, because they've lost their voice, um, they're losing, they're stripped of all their rights, um, they're becoming mm-hmm. um, virtually a non-person, as has been mm-hmm. mentioned here, a losing support of family and friends, and, uh, you know, looked at, I think, as not trustworthy as, as offenders, And so the impact and reality of that is certainly loss of hope for, I think, many um, people who are incarcerated. And so stat-wise, it's interesting to look at who commits suicide. You know, um, we think that only people with mental illnesses like depression are suicidal. But uh, what research shows us is that actually 10% of people who take their own lives do it um, because they're having – uh, chronic pain or illness, or other problems that are severe and inescapable, so you know like financial problems or relationship breakups or certainly incarceration would would be um a condition in which uh might propel mm-hmm. somebody into hopelessness so I think you know um the men that you're speaking of um you know i'm I'm sure if you asked them, they would probably say, you know, that was a thought that went through my mind at one point. Mm-hmm. I mean, because they're they're faced with hopelessness, probably on a daily basis, and so they're having to fight that fight. Um,
1: so what would you say, I mean, if there is anyone, you know, for the sake of those who you know, might be related to someone who's in that position, who's probably considering that thought, wherever they are in the world. I mean, I know here in Nigeria, there are lots of people, it's, it's weird because there's actually lots of people who are in, you know, prison, paying for a crime to do it, and not having anybody to speak for them. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm always very grateful when I hear, you know, see people who are doing so much to um, highlight mm-hmm. um, certain issues that are going on. you know, and tell the truth about this things because there are lots of people, what would you say um, what advice would you give? I mean, you being a life coach what what advice would you give to someone who's probably considering that thought or feeling like there's no hope, maybe because there isn't any they don't have a Joan Trepper in their life presently right you yes. so, know um yes. but but what would you say in terms of you know, just to give them hope?
3: Yeah, well, I think um, I would say to the listeners struggling with mental health challenges of anxiety or depression or something else. To not uh let it define you, to not let it define you. mental health issues are medical issues, just like any other chronic medical problem just um it's a problem with the brain. It doesn't mean that you're weak um it doesn't mean um anything about you um what it means is you might need to consult with um a medical professional because it's a it's a it's a medical problem, just like any other medical problem, so you know you want to get treatment for that um to deny that you're having these problems. Um oftentimes once they've set in, they they don't go away. Um and I think that's what's so sad about our our prison system. I almost I almost don't want to call it a justice system, but a prison system. <laughs> because, you know, there's so many um people going into our our prison system and and they're not treated for mental health issues. And they're suffering so, um, as, as a mental mm-hmm. health care provider, I'm, I'm very concerned about that issue. Yeah. Okay. And and what about the families? You know, the fam the families of these people. Do you mean the the uh, suicide survivors, Alex?
1: yeah, you know, and the families of you know, the mem you know, the families of that are left behind, you know, the families of these victims of wrongful conviction. Um, they right. also some of them, you know, have lose their breadwinners, some of them lose the head of their family, they're left alone. They might also consider the thought, you know, you know, what would what would you see, I mean, just the thought of having lost someone, even those who've lost a victim, um what would you say? I mean, you're you're a survivor. You've lost someone in your life. You know what it is to reclaim your life. What advice would you have for them?
3: Right. Um, hmm, good question. Um, I think that the subject we're discussing today has been taboo um, in our cultures and in many cultures, many societies, to openly discussing the fact that our justice, criminal justice system, is broken, and that it it doesn't. It's not foolproof. Um, I, I think is it's not something that, that a lot of people feel comfortable discussing, and that, that's why this show is so important. So there's a stigma that goes with being a spouse or a family member or a friend of someone who's incarcerated. Um, and so I think, you know, um, it's easy to get hopeless, again, that word, um, when you're on the other side uh, of some situation like this. Um, I think that this kind of situation hasn't been recognized as a major public health issue. It hasn't, you know, in terms of mental health, it hasn't been recognized um, like it should be. And so it's so wonderful to hear, um, I don't want to say Max, <laughs> Mark. <laughs>
6: Mark, yes.
3: Mark, I got it. That's why it's so wonderful to have people like Mark uh, shine a spotlight uh, on our criminal justice system and the places that it needs repair because there's not adequate uh, public awareness about um, how common this is, right? How common this is. So raising community awareness and breaking down the taboo of talking about our broken criminal justice system is important to make progress in preventing um, these things Uh from happening in the future. Yeah, it's totally important.
6: But, I mean, you know, again, I go back to uh, so many of us have grown up um, with this idea that the criminal justice system is looking out for us now again that might be many of us who have grown up with privilege Um, you know and and i am a white man who's grown up in the united states always believing that the criminal justice system was on my side my stepfather was a Uh police officer for his entire career um... i i Uh grew up respecting the police and that's my life experience, and then I was a reporter for many, many years, and counting on mm-hmm. the word of the police, the word of the prosecutors, uh, to craft my stories. Um, and yes, there are times when you challenge what they're saying, you find the other side, uh, you you investigate further, and make sure that that what you're being told is the truth, and that's the the role of, of a of a reporter. But, you know, what we're seeing now with all these Black Lives Matter movements in the United States is um, we're hearing voices of folks who have the exact opposite experience that I had, that they've grown up not respecting the police because they didn't feel the police respected them. So you've got a complete sure. dysfunction in society in many neighborhoods and communities um, across the United States and in parts of the world as well, obviously. But in the U.S., it's it's becoming more and more apparent that Um, the foundation of respect, mutual respect, and trust is not there. So as a result of that, um, when we talk about wrongful convictions, we see far more clearly how these occur. Um, I've said this Mm -hmm. before. In many of the cases uh, of wrongful convictions that I have looked into, you find that a person who's been arrested and charged and convicted may very well not have done that crime but they ran in a circle uh, that police uh, might have thought, hey, you know, if they didn't do this one, they probably did a different one, or they're going to do a different one in a week or two weeks. So there's this sense of, of a whole community is is bad and a whole community is at risk and potentially could commit one of these crimes. Um and you know for those of us again like me who grew up on the other end of the spectrum uh we we never would have thought that this was happening to this extent because it wasn't talked about and it wasn't exposed but you know the more i as a reporter and just as a as a person in the united states a, a citizen of of the global community if you will which sounds cliche but it's true looks looks into this kind of thing you realize wait a minute Wait a minute. This this does happen. All there isn't as much good in the world as I thought. There is a definite element out there that you know doesn't care and is willing to perhaps arrest the wrong person, uh, charge the wrong person, convict the wrong person just to to get um, you know a check mark next to that crime in the solved category. And I never would have thought you know ten years ago even. That that was happening is, uh, or was as prevalent as I think it is. Um, you know, you talk oh. to people who are involved in this issue around the country. In Texas, the Innocence Project there estimates that as many as te- as much as 10 percent of all people currently behind bars in Texas. Uh, is wrongfully convicted. Wow. That's a huge percentage. Um, the folks here in Minnesota, the yeah. Innocence Project, say they estimate it's more like 3%. So, you know, again, it, it depends on your take. It depends on your point of view. Justice Anton Scalia mm-hmm. a few years ago in a ruling estimated that it was less than 1%, um, far far less than 1%. So, you know, there is no way to exactly determine how many people are wrongfully convicted and going through this um, because the vast majority of them will, will – Will never have their cases investigated. There isn't enough money. There aren't enough people. There isn't enough time to investigate all all claims of of wrongful convictions. And and a lot of these wrongful convictions are for things that um you know they're not murder. They might be on a far less uh, far far smaller scale. But again, you're talking mm-hmm. about people in a community who don't have a voice, who don't have money, mm-hmm. who don't have uh, who have who have grown up in maybe a cycle of poverty, despair, and crime all around mm-hmm. them um and so they're kind of roped into this um even though they may very well not be at fault so you know there are so many layers of complexities here and i'm not a psychologist i'm just trying to uh uh, on our end here at the reporters make sense of it for the layman you know make bring it to the bring it to the masses in a populist form so it's it's understandable, digestible, and that again, it can it can be used as a springboard, a springboard to get people
1: to act. Sure, very I, true. I
2: know with I know with my experience. I've been involved in this for six years. Um, before this, I had no idea this sort of thing happened, but now that I do, oh. and I've met exonerees, I've met people who've been through this. I've met. People like Joan mm. who have loved ones, I look at every case in the news now a lot different. I scrutinize Thank a you. lot more, but people who aren't aware of the issue um, don't know to do that.
4: I wanted to, um, I wanted to mention too that, you know, <clears throat> losing this kind of trust in, um, in an entity that is so large. Um, and that you've been taught um, is, is doing well by you is uh, it affects your life in a huge way, huge. Um, you know, like like Joan T said, you start questioning what you read in the newspaper about a case. You start questioning what you see on TV because you know you've now experienced that it's not always. The way it's presented. It, it's not it's not always hundred percent. And and um that really shakes the foundation of um how you feel in, in your daily life. Like it, it rips away a sense of security that just was always there. You didn't you didn't even really think about it. You just knew it was there, you counted on it being there and you went about your business feeling like you have some form of protection. Now, when when you watch your family being attacked by the same entity you felt was protecting you, it is a horrendous shock to your system, you know. I mean, you spend hours and hours and days and days and weeks upon months trying to figure out, you know, what is going on? How, how can this be? And and still, you convince yourself, well, you know, uh, uh, I'm innocent, so I don't have anything to worry about because they're going to know. They're, they're going to see I'm innocent. And and you. next thing you know, you're being hauled away, ripped away from your family. Um, your whole world is taken from you. And you're in prison. And you sit there going, I don't get it. How how did this happen? How did I end up here? Why didn't anybody see what was going on? Um, and, again, that, that just all comes down to um, being, you just kind of take it as a sense of something that's there that you just take for granted. and And so you don't really give it a lot of thought until it gets turned upside down and you have to deal with it.
2: I think uh, we should have our listeners get um, Johnny's perspective as someone who's been in law enforcement all his life, um, his thoughts about wrongful convictions and his thoughts about what he thought about when I introduced him to this issue.
1: Hi, Johnny. Hi,
7: how Hello, are you? Johnny. Hi. Okay. Funny.
1: Yeah, uh, so uh, would you would you I mean could we get your perspective, you know, on um, this from a law enforcement uh perspective. I mean, you've been part of I mean you were part of this uh at the very beginning and you know, what do you think of I this? Mean,
7: okay. okay. Mhm. I I I don't mind uh I don't mind discussing this at all. Um <laughs> Prior to uh, prior to Joan involving me in this uh, saga, this travesty of injustice, I I was was a detective
5: uh,
7: and worked probably thirty some years, and I worked every possible kind of investigation. For any kind of crime from murder to rape to robbery to arson to aggravated assault to
8: oh my goodness,
7: you name it, even suicides. And I, I always, uh, 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 had what we call blinders on. I, I learned, uh, very young in my career that, you know, take nothing for granted and, uh, question everything and uh but keep the blinders on and stay focused and so having testified in thousands of of trials I I I could never, never ever lie because of the oath of the office uh that I took was it was was most important and can amount uh to, to anything and everything to me. Uh, it was, it, your oath of office as a law enforcement person, a professional, an expert, should be and must be, um, and more important than anything. So, having said that, you know, manipulating evidence, uh, uh, intimidating witnesses, uh, uh, cr- creating false testimony, uh, playing games, so to speak. It's just something that I never did. I, I I know I know there's people in that profession that do that. I can tell you that. I know that. However, I didn't do it. And most of the professionals most people in law enforcement don't do that. But there are some. There are there are bad eggs. The problem is the system needs those bad eggs to help assist with wrongful incarcerations, and there lies the problem. So you get get innocent people wrongfully convicted from a district attorney who wants to be reelected, who needs a paycheck, a law enforcement official who's not an honest person, who's not a professional, who wants a paycheck also, but will manipulate the system uh, to to keep the job and then everybody around n- n- never takes action to get rid of these people so you know the the system like like Marx was talking earlier about 10% of the people incarcerated and wrongfully and uh, you know 10% are wrongfully incarcerated in Texas that that's probably what, what the problem we have in law enforcement is who knows what the real percentage is on a national basis of how many cops are uh-huh. bad cops? I mean, uh-huh. you can pass all the tests and all the examinations in the world to get into, uh, you know, a job where you're an, you're an official, especially a law enforcement official. You can pass all those examinations, but you know, one, two, three, four, five years into the job, you you can also be be, you know, flipped so to speak, in your mind, where, you know, everybody's a criminal, uh, you know, it's more important for me to incarcerate all these people, or whatever objective, you know, that they purport to have in their mind to to do those kinds of things. But I, I can tell you from when I hear about them and when I heard about this case from Joan and I read the book three times and then I looked into this case myself and saw how much damage, how much falsativity, how much how much fraud had been created by the system I, I was compelled uh, to, to to come forward and, and assist. Now having done this I am now frowned upon. I have lost lots of people in law enforcement. And we're talking FBI agents who don't like me anymore. Alcohol, tobacco, firearms, professionals, people from Secret Service—I mean, Drug Enforcement Agency—I'm talking about a lot, a lot of guys I've known all my life don't want anything to do with me anymore because I got involved in this case, and
8: I'm and uh-huh. I'm
7: committed to I'm committed to seeing justice done, and in the process, wow. you end up stepping on your brothers and sisters um. in law enforcement. So, if you want to talk Johnny, about having Yes, ma'am.
2: I'm sorry to interrupt. I I just wanted to ask you a question. Um so how do you think bullying um plays in all of this? I mean, do you oh. look at these
8: <laughs> law bullies. enforcement
2: officials as bullies? Because I I feel like um wrongful convictions are based on a big bullying campaign.
7: And, you know, Joe, you hit the nail on the head. These are things that in the psychiatric world, when, you know, an evaluation needs to be done on a person for a specific job like law enforcement, this is the kind of psychiatric background, so to speak, that needs to be looked into on the person to see what what did they do in grade school? What what kind of person were they in high school? You know, I mean this it's really easy to find out if a person is a bully or not. It's not difficult. (laughs) And but yet having said this, we don't do any of that, so therefore we have no measure, no nothing in place to stop people like bullies, getting into positions where they do these kinds of damaging things to people and get away with it because the position that they have allows them this kind of conduct.
5: Huh.
7: Nobody nobody does anything about it. Does that, does that kind of help you a little bit, Joan T.?
2: Yeah, it does. It okay. does. Okay. I, okay. I think I agree with you 100%.
7: And, and <clears throat> backing up a little bit, that's why I think, uh, you know, what Joan has started uh, and I've been with her on this journey and I've watched this thing from the outside, even though I've been on the inside, I'm on the outside too. And then this thing is growing this interest and then having Mr. Mr. Meyer and his company involved in wanting to do this documentary is, is, is all about, you know, creating this really powerful, effective, Moral change. And what, everything Mark has said, I 100% concur with, with him. He knows exactly what he's talking about, and he's right. These communities, I've worked in them. I've worked with, with African Americans and Asians. I've arrested them. I've released them. I've testified in their behalf. I've testified against them. I've helped incarcerate them, but I didn't do it based on fraudulent circumstances. And I didn't I, use trickery <laughs> or set is, anybody up.
4: This is Joan D. Um, i I'd like to interject myself here um, a little bit about um, what I saw happening throughout the investigation and um, our case. And the, the bully factor was... Absolutely undeniable. When you take an average everyday person um, just going about their life and you stick them in a room and you yell and you scream and you pound the table and you're in a position of authority, that is
7: terrifying for people
4: who are not accustomed to being treated that way.
7: Yes, you're right, Joan. You, You were correct.
4: And that happened to... To dozens and dozens and dozens of people um, being dragged away from their work line, being dragged out of their home, being, you know, put in small rooms, and having a, a, a very energized investigator yelling and screaming at them and telling them they're going to lose their job because they're not cooperating. They're going to be taken well, from take their your families. List. Yes. We're taking we're your child because you're on. Sick. You're you're backing these these criminals up. Um, it's terrifying when you're telling a person we're taking everything you love, everything you work for. We're gonna take that from you because you're not playing ball. That's it's terrifying. And and this didn't happen for 20 minutes or a half hour. Some people were subjected to this for eight hours. 12 hours, non-stop, straight, no break. Now, if that isn't bullying mentality, I can't even begin to imagine what is. And these I are call. full-grown adults having to endure this kind of treatment. Does anybody know the
2: the percentage of wrongful convictions to date that are, um, the um, person has actually confessed? Mark, do you know...
6: No, Are you familiar
2: with what that is?
6: The actual confession. No, I don't know if I know that.
2: Okay. I thought fact. I heard a um maybe twenty five percent of existing wrongful convictions. I but I don't I can't confirm that.
7: Well that sounds go ahead. Mark. Correct in the
6: vicinity, but I don't know the exact number.
7: Yeah. Uh let, let, let me add something to that too, Joan, while while you're on it. Um in you know, in the process of an investigation, a professional investigator, you know, we're really we're not allowed to put words in people's mouths that we interview or interrogate, uh, and, and and the problem that you have with a with a bully is a bully is going to say to the person that they're interviewing or interrogating, uh, here. Sign this statement because I wrote it out for you, and, you know, I'm trying to help you. So go ahead and sign this statement, and then you'll be out of here. <laughs> I mean, he just completely took over the whole thing. And, you know, so the guy reads it, and he doesn't remember what he's reading. He's excited. He wants to get out of there. He's in he's in a strange place, and he's nervous, and he doesn't have the proper legal protection. or He just, he just goes ahead and signs a statement. Well, then they take him downstairs and book him. Wow. To just confess to the crime, and, and this is oh. this is what you see in some of these cases. You know, when we talk about uh, false statements and, and setting yes, a, a person up for conviction, but at the same time, that takes a certain kind of person to employ that, and that would be a bully.
4: Yes, and you know, in in our case, it wasn't even simply um, the suspects that this was happening to. This happened to dozens and dozens of witnesses or, you know, who the who the investigator believed could be a witness. I mean, this, this wasn't even the suspects being treated this way. This was a whole line of people being bullied and pushed and threatened into saying something that they were adamant was not true. And, and right. in the end, some of them threw in the towel, said, good grief, I want to go home. You know, after eight hours of oh. constant badgering. Who, you know, not a lot of people can withstand that, especially if they're oh. drugged through it more than once. Right. It, it's horrific, oh. the kind of treatment that that people um, had to endure. Uh, o- over a two-year period, and and it went on even longer than that after. I mean, when people came forward to recant their statements and and complain that the investigator injected um, information that they you know into the statement that they never said that they were pushed and screamed at and and told that that they would be in jail if they didn't sign it. Um, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Ridiculous that that kind of, um, you know, quote, evidence, unquote, is even accepted into a courtroom. It, 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 it just sickens me that any prosecutor, any prosecutor with a, an ounce of conscience and decency would accept those kind of statements.
3: I'd I'd like like to bring in a a psychological perspective on this bullying, if I can, for a moment. Uh, This is Nina. You you know, as I'm listening to Joan's story, as I'm listening to Johnny's story, it's just, again, I'm hearing such traumatization, um, not only to the convicted, but also to their friends and family are being traumatized. And I think our criminal system is creating a culture of mistrust and fear. Um, at time,
5: mm-hmm. among mm-hmm. citizens,
3: uh, you know that it should be protecting. And
5: so, um,
3: yeah, I, this is this is adult bullying. You know, we hear about it in schools, but obviously, that's not the only place it happens because there's a power differential. Because law enforcement is authority. So I think it's common for the family of. The wrongfully convicted to feel powerless and feel frustrated when their loved ones are the target. And And
4: I think think Mm by. I'm sorry, I I was just going to say, you know, and and think about the career lifespan of this bully in, in a position of authority. How many lives does that one person inject all that ugliness and mistrust into over
2: his career?
4: His, his
3: wow. career, Right.
2: I you mean, know? it's,
5: it's kind of
3: mind-boggling to think, isn't it, Joan? And so I just want to introduce something about how to maybe make a dent in this, how to possibly uh, okay. prevent this happening. Um, I think by teaching okay. people, by teaching average citizens to get involved, to be what I might call an upstander rather than a bystander, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um to have the average citizen mm-hmm. uh, take more of a vital role in supporting the wrongful conviction cause um I, I think that's, i think that's what we've got to get going here is that kind of grassroots movement and also media attention is very important mm-hmm. but i also think it's and, and how we do that it's by teaching and modeling empathy you know when right. we're when we're modeling Hello. empathy then um and when we're good listeners, when we're understanding, when we're showing compassion, it encourages other people around us to do the same.
2: Absolutely. And that's exactly what
3: I do. That's exactly what I do
2: and I I try to inspire others. I I put out my message on social media. It's not it's not about me. It's not about getting famous or rich uh-huh. or anything like that. It's about the empathy and about being so angered about what's happening to other people. And I'm hoping Aww. that what I what I've done through my actions is an inspiration to others to get involved because I mean people want proof that what you say is true and what your your message is genuine. And that's I've kind of laid that groundwork in the last 6 years and so I'm hoping <coughs> that people will see that well, boy, she didn't have a legal background if If she can do what she did, maybe I can do something, you know, on some sort of scale.
6: If I can interject something, guys? Sir? When you talk about the bullying, I know you're talking about these coerced confessions. And there's a movement, of course, basically to have all police departments be required throughout the United States to videotape their interrogations. That's uh, now Uh basically the norm in Texas. And, you know, if you watch any of the mainstream programs like 48 hours or 2020 or dateline Uh in the United States, or again, this, this Netflix show, uh, making a murderer and you watch these interrogations. um, It's very clear. um, It should be clear to people now, how of course confession comes about because, you know, Uh just hearing about it. If you hear somebody confess to a crime, you're like, well, they confessed. Of course they did it. Mm -hmm. Um, When you watch, Mm -hmm. Um, the components of these videotaped interviews uh you can clearly see how a coercive confession comes and it, it is as you, everyone's been saying this uh, this abuse of power or this um uh inequality in power and you see people who don't know they should have asked for an attorney they don't know um how to respond to police officers who they again have been told um are trustworthy in the case uh if any of you have seen this and you should uh, the Netflix making a murderer they've they've shown um the interrogation of the sixteen year old boy um and it's fascinating to see how someone who is clearly learning disabled or, or um you know not at a level that many of us are struggling with even comprehending what's being said to him so you know you see a lot of folks who have been i don't want to say railroaded but but they they're just they have no other choice they end up confessing anything just to get out of that room so th- yes. that's that's a key component if 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 all police departments are required to videotape interrogations from start to finish and they're shown to juries it would it would change things dramatically and hopefully it will in the future
2: you
5: know i think in this,
2: in this era of social media and um you know all types of media i think mark um. what you're doing making the Documentary, you know, because we've seen the uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. how this uh, how making a murderer has spearheaded a discussion across the nation. In fact, don't I understand that you were um, called by um, Minneapolis paper, Star Tribune, to do an interview because of all the all the um, energy that's been generated around that. Yeah, it's huge buzz.
6: Yeah, we did. Uh, you know, again, you have you have mainstream media calling us to talk about um, what's basically you know it, it's a documentary, but it's also very entertainment esque. It's it's edited and written in a way that's like a whodunit. Um, um, so again, you've got different parts of the culture all responding to one another about this, and you know there are pros and cons to that, but. But in the end, it goes back to that: uh, no publicity is bad publicity. If people are talking and thinking, then um, you know that will create change. Right.
4: Exactly. I agree. Very I agree. A hundred percent.
1: Very I, if, true. Very true.
4: If I could add something too, um, that Nina, what something Nina had said, um, kind of triggered for me. In and I'm hoping that it'll, you know, for for all the other people out there. Fighting the same fight that our families are fighting, um, you know that that it'll give them some sense of uh, understanding that there's purpose in in their fight. And you know, Nina had said how you know we need to create this awareness among people and get them to step up and, and get involved when they see something like this happening and they see people who are are struggling and 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 trying to fight their way out of such a dark dark um, place um you know to become involved and and that in itself is is a bigger picture and and so you know like everything happens for a reason and when something happens it's because something happened before it um and you know in in Trying to say it in, in kind of a, a short fashion, but you know, really wanting to to reach out to people out there is, um, you know, a couple of things that, a couple of lessons that I've been reminded of recently, um, that I'm sure i have learned somewhere in the past before, but it, you know, these lessons have grown kind of, kind of quiet for me, um, and, and it it came um, through the loss of my cat, who really truly was a source of balance for me. Um it's God works in mysterious ways, they say, and it's absolutely true. It's, sometimes it's it's a very painful process um to get to the big picture. Um you know, you, you fight grief and you fight anger and you know, I was asking him why he would have to take my cat. You know, I mean my best friend, why? When I've been working so hard and um, to grow myself and to be a better person and, and to give more of myself, why then would you take something so important from me? You know, in my life, and I was angry and in such grief. And when you're in that, when you're in that moment, it's hard to see past that. You know, it, it's it's hard to let go of that and and really look at the big picture and what it came down to is this: that my cat tom he served a purpose he had a purpose to be with me even though i had to let him go he he was a creature that truly loved the whole world and honestly believed that the whole world loved him right back and and we all know that sometimes you know that's just not the case um but he taught me that, you know. I mean, he gave me the ability to see every interesting thing through through his eyes and, and appreciate a bigger picture. And, and that's a tool for for me to use. And I was angry because, you know, why weren't you with me? Why weren't you watching over him? You know, it's hard. Why would we not be watching over him? And, you know, the answer to that eventually came to me and 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 that is that he was the higher powers you know they gave us free will and they promised not to intercede we have the right to make our own choices in this life you know and sometimes we have to choose to step out of ourselves and and out of our own personal want and see the bigger picture and you know that's how i feel about our our men are our men as angry as you know, I spent a lot of time being angry at what happened to my stepdad Michael Johnson. Um, it hurt, I was hurt and I was angry and I was resentful. How could you let this happen to such a decent man? I, I don't I don't understand. Why why weren't you with him? But here's the thing, you know, he was with him as he's with all of the other men. They're, they're being watched over, and the thing is, is there's a plan in place, and there's a bigger picture. And sometimes, certain people have to go through some very bad things, but it's because they're chosen to do so because they have what they have in them, what it takes to carry this flag of hope and to carry this flag of challenging what's wrong, and and to bring awareness to people. And that is the bigger picture. There's a purpose to all the struggles and the fight, and it's worth taking that step, and it's worth taking the next step, that all that is good is on our side because we're doing what's right and we're fighting for something that matters. And... We need to sometimes, we we need to be reminded of that, and sometimes that reminder comes in very painful ways.
3: Mm -hmm.
4: Hey, Joan, this is Nina. Can I say
3: one thing? Because you're talking about grief here. You're you're talking about grief, and you're talking a lot about loss. And uh, I think we think of grief as a one-time event, you know, like a time in your life when you mourn if someone dies, and then you move on. But I think, you know, you... uh, you meaning the families of, of people who are incarcerated, are not able to do that. You can't move on. It's almost I'm like almost time fine. is frozen right there.
4: Exactly. exactly.
3: And, that's, and, and that's difficult when you have that amount of grief. Because And then the grief becomes this ongoing process where, yes. you know, you grieve at different levels and, um, you know, and eventually life does move on. But what's going to happen for these people is they're going to grieve on and off, for the rest of their lives. So talking about it like you're doing, Joan, as well as writing or journaling about it can be incredibly cathartic. I mean, I know. I'm a suicide survivor. Um, I've experienced years of grief. So, And I noticed that the more I speak out about it, the better I felt. Uh, The more I wrote about it, the better I felt. Well, you know, Nina,
4: because when when you do that, you're giving people – um, hope and that gives you purpose, you know, and and that's sure. what I hold on to. But I, you know, I'm I'm not. It's it's not purely a selfish thing where I I want my stepfather to gain the freedom he so rightly deserves. It's it's about also connecting with other people who feel the same anger and the same grief and the same sadness at all that's been lost. Um, mm-hmm.
5: Mm-hmm. And
4: and will never be recovered, and it, it's a constant grieving process. But I've learned that if I step, if if I force myself to step out of that grief and out of the inner self, and and act in the outer world and take action and reach out, that it it gives all of this hell purpose. And And, I think, you
3: know, Joan, that the kind of grieving that you're doing is extra hard because there's a stigma, (laughs) huge stigma attached um, to the kind of grieving that you're doing and and this code of silence that's attached to it that makes it even harder for the families and the friends to heal. So uh, so I just want to say a tragedy of this magnitude can't be navigated alone, and that's why it's important for... Um, us to reach out to these families. Um, it's so important, and mm-hmm. for those families to reach out, and that's what you're doing here on the on the air today. You're reaching out.
4: Thank you, and I agree. Yeah, really am-
3: a, a community is. Yeah. yeah.
4: It's it's a hard place to be because you know I, I mean normally you grieve an event that and that event comes and goes, um, but this event right, right. is. It's ongoing. It's ongoing. And there's been so much damage caused that it, it's it's almost unfathomable to to think of healing all of it. Um, but the choice has to be made of whether you're going to wallow in that misery um, and, and let them take even more from you, or you're going to stand up and, and you're going to crawl, you're going to walk, you're going to run, you're going to do whatever it takes to stop them from taking any more from you. And and I, I think that that's a very personal decision to make, but it's one that really can create positive change out in our communities and, you know, and, and for each other.
3: Yeah, and I just want to emphasize that um, the families and friends of the incarcerated and also the incarcerated themselves need more support, not less. So it's important that they get a chance to talk about it.
4: Um, they need and more that, support. You know, their family members are really, you know, Joan, Joan Trepa has been a, a, a huge voice um, for all of us, in, in, you know, including especially the men, um, because what what she says tends to carry more weight. Than what we have to say because she's not family, she's not related. She Uh, she wasn't friends with any of them when this started. Um, She you know, an independent entity choosing to step in and and help to make a difference. And so her voice carries really a stronger weight um, out in the public view than than ours does. And you know that's it's frustrating at times, um, but that's the reality of the situation and and you know you you learn over the years after falling on your face time and time again um fighting this and struggling with this that there are some realities you just accept and you learn how to work with it um and and Joan has been very very gracious about um allowing families to to enter well um to enter her grace
5: Oh. Yeah,
3: I think the power so of much. the Thank average citizen, citizen is underrated. I mean, just look at Joan Trepa. You know, Joan, you don't have a legal background, do you? <laughs> nope, nothing. No,
2: I
5: did not hear you right are. what I was going to do to
4: yeah. get yep. this
2: off the ground, but it's been a miracle.
4: So Joan T. has had indomitable will and a voice, and she's taken those two things and created a tremendous, um, progress in in a movement that um we really felt quite lost in.
3: That's why I we call her Frank. Saint Joan. I call her Saint Joan because of
4: that. Saint in Joan. fact I'll need yeah. <laughs>
3: both of you Jones right now. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and frankly I just got ticked off. <laughs> I got ticked <laughs> off about the situation. <laughs>
0: well, are are we, are we on the air? On <laughs> Well, yes,
1: Helen, hello, guys. Um, you know, uh, just, I, I didn't want to, like, you know, just, I didn't want to cut Joan off because I understood how important it was for her to sort of just let it out and, you know, uh, share and, and just, you know, basically communicate and just let people know how she felt and how, you know, speak on behalf of the families of these people because um, she's been there, she's there, she understands how, you know, the hurt and the pain Um basically a vicious feeling so but it's been a great conversation guys and we have to wrap this up we've been here almost two hours you know just um you know sharing raising our voices you know for those who are who've been wrongful wrongfully convicted and i i'm you know i'm hoping that you guys can come back again on the show you know sometime in the year and we can you know kick you know continue this conversation and maybe uh we'll be um the documentary by, might be done by then uh hi mac are you still there
6: I am. I'm I not. hope you're right. We're shooting through <laughs> this fall.
1: Okay. Okay. Fine. So, um, you know,
0: we'll love we'll like to. If I mean, any Alex if anybody wants to visit. know more
6: about it, it's on. You can find all the details on our website, which is uh, www.thereporters.org. dot. thereporters. dot org. So it's thereporters. dot org. Basically, um, and course. you can, you'll get all the updates you want, and we're on Facebook as well, The Reporters Inc.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mac. It was such a pleasure having you here on the show. Um, Hi, Joan. Any final words before we wrap this up? Joan T.
2: Yes. um, I just hope that people take away a renewed concern for others around them and find themselves compelled into action, um, regardless of what it is. But just don't, don't... you know, be aware, stop judging and get the facts around any situation and most of all just kind to others and help out if the if it um you know a situation presents itself and that's it.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you so much Joan Shepard. It was a real pleasure having you back here on the show. And Nina, hi Nina Bingham. You know, any final words before?
3: Um I, I guess just uh, the power of the average citizen is pretty amazing. And um, both of our Jones and, uh, you know, the the folks on air today uh, may not have a legal background, but they're changing the legal system. So um, it it doesn't take, you know, it doesn't take uh, an an academic degree to care. And and really that's where it starts. It's just beginning to care and try to find a way to plug in.
1: Okay. Thank you so much, Nina. Uh,
3: Jones, Jonesy.
1: Hi Joe. Well
4: Yeah. I'm just trying not to be long winded. Um I, I, uh, I just wanna take uh this this quick moment to thank everyone who follows and shares and supports um and lends their voice and and I'm hoping and I'm hoping beyond hope twenty sixteen be the year of action for people um, and, you know, even if it's not this cause, pick something and get involved because nothing changes if you don't. And and you can't just keep thinking that okay. someone else is going to do it because most of the times that's just not the case. And you can only add to the good um, that people are doing. So Absolutely. please.
3: Like Gandhi said, be the change so. you want, right? Exactly. Right. Be the change yes. you want to see. <laughs>
4: Exactly.
1: Yay. Thank you so much, Johnny. Hi Johnny. Is this is there?
7: Johnny here. <laughs> yes, ma'am. I'm still okay. here. Uh you
1: know, Do you do you have any final words you'd just like to add to this conversation before we wrap it up?
7: I would like to thank Joan Trepa, Joan Van Houten, Nina, and of course, uh Mark Saxonmeyer for Hi. and of course you, Alex, uh for allowing us to come onto your show and have this fruitful, thoughtful, meaningful discussion about change is coming and change is always coming. <laughs> Ditto
2: that.
1: Amen. Excellent. Thank you so much, Jenny. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, um, you know, it's been an amazing show and I'm very you know, I'm glad that we had this conversation. Just having all of these amazing people who are doing so much to influence their communities and influence, you know, the world at large and just adding your voices and being thoughtful and aware and just encouraging and inspiring people uh, to do the much that they can to improve the lives of other people. I'm so grateful. I'm so glad. I'm very honored to have all of you here Matt. Uh But I'm glad I do say Max this time.
5: <laughs> Thank you so
1: much. Uh, until we come back same time on Friday Radio Special with my next guest, uh, I love you all. Uh, don't forget, expression is design of strength, not weakness. Uh, have a good day. Ciao. Love you, too, Thank Alex. You. Bye. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Bye.
5: <laughs> it's
0: unscripted. It's It's unfiltered. It's out. It's uncalled. and It's unscripted. It's unscripted. It's unscripted. It's unscripted. It's unscripted.
1: Listen to the
0: Naked Talk with Alex Kukoruchi.